What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 218. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Forresteros. And I'm Matt Michelados. Today, Hey, we- wait, can we do that over and have yeah. Matt do a weird name? <laughs> I've I've had clamoring for... Okay. You've had clamoring? What, one person mentioned it to you? Was it Clay? Several. Oh. Several How Michelados got his groove back? Is that what we're looking for here? I got it. I got it. I'm ready. Okay. Take two. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 218. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Forresteros. And I am Matt McCommunication Lottos. Welcome. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. Hey, today we just want to say happy birthday. Happy birthday to things that are 30 and, and people, I guess also people. We thought it would be fun to spend a little time in the beginning to talk about things that turned 30 in the year 2019 to make all of you who are older than 30 feel really old and all of you who are younger than 30 feel like thankful for these things, which I feel like have we're really scratch your heads and say, life. why are we talking about all this old stuff? <laughs> what did you do before that thing happened or existed? Also, we should mention if you haven't already figured it out, our dear friend and co-host Kathy ha- is off doing fun things. Uh, She's in today. Paris, I think. I think so. Yeah. I think so. so. So Kathy's not with us today, but we wish her all the best. And well, we're not... she's with us in spirit because in spirit. let's face it, guys, Kathy is the wind beneath our wings, which it's actually true. came out in 1989 in the movie Beaches. Ooh. Oh. oh. Ah. And that's what 30 years ago was, isn't it? 1989. Ah. Yes. It's a little astounding to me how many great movies came out in 1989. Like, I wish that I had been going to the movie theater then, <laughs> like I go to the movie theater now, because except for 2015, when I watched Mad Max Fury Road in theaters 150 times, and maybe the year <laughs> Gravity came out and I watched it in theaters like 15 times, I don't think there I've seen this many amazing films. And I just want to read a, a partial list. Yeah. The original Pet Cemetery, wow. super scary. Of course, Tim Burton's Batman. Yep, saw that in the theater. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Saw that in the theater. <laughs> Indiana <laughs> Jones and the Last Crusade. Saw that in the yes. theater. The Little Mermaid. It was a good summer. Yeah. I went to that one, too. Uh, keep <laughs> singing. Uh, Dead Poet Society. Great yes. movie. Of course, uh, Best Picture, 1989, Do the Right Thing. Oh. Um, Spike Lee joint. Uh, Back to the Future 2, which is my personal favorite Back to the Future. I know that many people yeah. consider it the least. but Saw that in the theater. Um, I, that was I, back I, when we could pretend that bad 1985 was uh, the darkest timeline that would never happen. Back um, to the Future 2 was, for me personally, the most painful in-movie cliffhanger I ever experienced. Really? What? Because uh, of the in, I mean, Think about how it of- ends. I mean, it is... You're sitting in the theater like, what? Yeah. Oh, no, I know. It was a lightning was, strike. Um, when Harry Met Sally, great one movie. of the great all-time romantic comedies. Yep. Uh, Major League. Oh, man. I've watched that so many times. I've Honey, not I seen shrunk, it in the theater. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Classic. Um, Classic. Ghostbusters 2, 
the Burbs, Uncle Buck, Steel Magnolias, Field Wait, of Dreams. Wait, did you skip Field of Dreams? Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. One of the Field finest of films. Dreams. Say anything. Say anything. <laughs> the Abyss. <laughs> so good. Christmas Vacation. The guys oh, watch it every year. Unreal. Classic. Weekend at Bernie's, Born on the Fourth of July. It's it's just out of control. I saw Weekend How- at Bernie's two in the theater. I can't remember the first one in theater. I would have been too young. Do you think if I just keep telling people that Do the Right Thing won Best Picture in 1989, we'll forget eventually that it was Driving Miss Daisy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it'll work. Um, Kiki's Delivery Service came out in 1989. How That's could a we movie that one? my family still enjoys to this day. But it's not just about movies that are 30 years old, right? But wait, can I just mention one more? Because okay. it was a key piece of my childhood. UHF by Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, so not and just you know, movies, Clay. What else we got? Well, wasn't Michael Richards in UHF? He was, as a matter of fact. Stanley Spadowski. Stanley Spadowski. And then he spun that off, basically. Yep. Into Kramer on Seinfeld. Yep. Which also came out in 1989. True. Yeah. A lot of it. We were actually arguing about this before the show and had to use the magic of the internet, whether all these TV shows actually came the same year. But Seinfeld. It, just, it still doesn't seem possible to me. Yeah. I'm it came out the same that. year as Saved by the Bell and The Simpsons. Well, The Simpsons TV, like regular TV show, it wasn't their first appearance on TV. Um. Do you yeah. know who was in as a guest star in the first episode of Saved by the Bell? Who? She plays a sophomore that Zach Morris met over the summer, and he lied and said that he was a sophomore <laughs> so that they could date oh, all summer. She, she is gets, she a famous blonde actress? Uh, I it, sh- I don't know. Because there were a lot blonde. of famous people brunette. who had their first appearance on TV. Uh, someone's on the tip of my brain that she was in Saved by the Bell and everybody forgot. I, like, she's yeah. not like – it's not like Julia Roberts or someone like that, but it's it's uh, Carla Gugino. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. And so, of course, she gets transferred to Bayside, Indiana, to go to high school and runs into Zach. And the whole episode is Zach trying to get everyone to pretend that he's a sophomore. And shockingly, <laughs> it does not work. And he learns a valuable lesson about telling the truth that lasts all the way till the second episode. <laughs> Freeze frame. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, but I was so surprised. That's actually why, you know, I was, I was scrolling through Hulu and I saw that it's all on there. And it said, uh, Carla Gugino guest stars in the first episode of Saved by the Bell. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But sure enough, it's, there it, she it, was. It's interesting how eras get jumbled up in my brain. Because Baywatch, Saved by the Bell, and Seinfeld happened in a very specific order. And I would have said Saved by the Bell was earlier than Seinfeld, than Baywatch. But they're actually all 1989. You would have said Baywatch was last or earliest? I would have said it was last. To oh, me, I would that's have said like it was the nineties. I don't know. Huh. What I most remember about nineteen eighty nine, probably the most exciting thing that happened for me and my friend group was the Game Boy. Oh, that yeah. was pretty mm-hmm. epic. Remember you could take the cable, connect two Game Boys, and play Tetris simultaneously. It was <laughs> insanity. It was like the future. I remember probably uh, probably the most exciting from thing for me personally in 1989 was that DNA evidence started being used in court. And that's, <laughs> that was a yeah, big you were, relief for you. Yeah. You know, it was a big relief because that <laughs> proved I was innocent. You know, <laughs> you were pretty excited about that. I'm sure it wasn't <laughs> yeah. you. It was the one armed man. Now we can, it was the one armed man. Exactly. Yep. 
I was so this, happy. I do remember the Berlin Wall falling in 1989. Oh, yeah. And that was, oh, that was massive. We watched on TV as they were taking some of the pieces out. Yeah. David Hasselhoff went over and played a concert on that wall. You, you all are aware, right, that Hasselhoff is huge in Germany. Yes. Oh, gigantic. Okay. Okay. Did you know yeah. he has the same birthday as me? July 17th. Are you the uh, same age? I did not know that. Yeah. I'm, uh, except I'm younger. Okay. But other than that, the same. Uh, do you feel the same about cheeseburgers as him? How does he feel about cheeseburgers? Oh, did you not see that video that was leaked a few years ago? He was super drunk and laying on the floor and asking for cheeseburgers. (laughs) Nope. I've never been drunk, but I might ask for cheeseburgers while drunk. This seems likely. (laughs) I figured I would peg you for a burrito person. Oh my gosh. I ask for burritos at all times. Right. That's what I'm saying. Probably both. (laughs) Bring me six burritos and a cheeseburger. You know, the uh, soundtrack to 1989 was interesting. Now, a lot of people... I remember a lot of girls that didn't talk to me were obsessed with new kids on the block. <laughs> and um, I was probably obsessed with Paul Abdul. Ooh. Oh. She well, said she was my, forever my girl. One of my great rock and roll crushes, Dolores O'Rourdon, uh, got her start in 1989 when the Cranberries kicked oh, off. Oh, so yeah. And I think it's Amazing. so interesting. So look at the, thi- the things happening in the globe. Tiananmen Square Massacre, Fall of the Berlin Wall, the Fall of the Iron Curtain. Like, these are massive global things. And, of course, the Cranberries, like – a lot of what they were doing is protest rock, protesting the the troubles in Ireland. Um, so it's just it's interesting that there was so much global tension at that time, uh, and and uh, I don't know, like it, it it's so interesting that thirty years later it doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed. Yeah, who would have thought that text messaging, which was also introduced in nineteen eighty nine, would become the primary way everyone communicates? <laughs> oh yeah, like if you told someone in nineteen eighty nine, thirty years from now, it'll seem rude if you just call someone out of the blue, and they'd be like, "What are you? How would you get a hold of them then?" Like, you, did, did we even have caller ID in nineteen eighty nine? I don't like. I remember. Yeah, it would just ring at your house, and you're like, I wonder who it is, a complete stranger or one of my friends. (laughs) What I remember about that era, I don't know about you guys, but I got picked up a lot, like, by – especially, like, for, like, youth group activities, right? Because the family that ran (laughs) – I didn't know what you were talking about. I was like, where is this going? I thought it was, like, a dating thing. I was like, like, what? So, you know, somebody would call and be like, I'm coming over. Or on Wednesday nights, I just knew that my ride would be there around blank o'clock. And yeah. y- you didn't sit in your room and wait for the text. You went and sat outside and waited for your ride. Yeah. And you just, like, stared at things. And oh, wait. I stayed inside and made him honk at me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like you. <laughs> oh, boy. Crazy. Man, one one like- other weird thing. Uh, 89 is the year that the last Japanese soldier... Uh, from World War II surrendered. He had been hiding uh, for decades and uh, like harassing people on this island he was on. And that was the year they finally, they found him and he said he still wouldn't, um, he still wouldn't surrender unless his commanding officer told him to. So they went and found his commanding officer who was a bookseller now. And he flew there and came and gave him his surrender orders. Hmm. Very amazing. It's too bad that texting wasn't advanced enough that he could have just texted him. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> he missed the whole Cold War is the crazy thing. Like, he went from the end of World War II all the way through to the end of the Cold War, essentially. Pretty amazing. You know, when I taught, it was interesting to see, like, the beginning of my teaching career, how there would be some students. And obviously, I taught 
not uh, a lot of uh, people who are older than me too, but there would be some younger students at the beginning who remembered certain things about the Cold War. And very quickly as it went on, I had to explain what it felt like to grow up in the 1980s, to watch the Olympics and be afraid of some, you know, five foot one East German gymnast because he clearly wanted my blood or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all these irrational things. And um, that actually really the end of the Cold War impacted the church too. And we were just uh, taking a peek at some Christianity Today covers from that time period. And do you guys remember, you know, mission trips, for example, were about certain parts of the world. And then all of a sudden, the Berlin Wall fell, Soviet Union collapsed, and all of Eastern Europe opened up in a new way. And that became this like new wave of church focus in into the 90s, especially getting Bibles into Russia and all that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that that was um, that was huge. The way churches were all talking about that—that's where yeah, evangelism sure. was heading too. You know, that you had to go over there and save the godless Russians. Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely, what you were always told was how all every Russian's a communist and they're all atheists, mm -hmm. which obviously is simplistic. And there were plenty of Christians in Russia at the time uh, and other religions. But, um, yeah, yeah, that for sure was a big part of the church. And do you guys remember like in the late eighties, early nineties, when someone talked to you about how do you communicate with someone outside of Christianity? Like what sorts of things were they telling you, telling us? Are you talking about evangelism training? Sure. Evangelism training, or just like, what should you say to your friends at school who don't know Jesus or, you know, like that kind of stuff? <laughs> well, I went to school with 12 people who all knew Jesus. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> but I heard about kids at other schools. <laughs> oh, the schools you're being protected from. Right. Yeah. Um, JR, you mentioned this the other day in your sermon. We were talk You were talking about how much that's changed, the way we talk to people about our faith. And, uh, you know, to to think that it was all about apologetics or basically defending your argument, right? Winning an argument. And the way you framed it, I thought was really interesting because it's, it's, it's really not the best way to start and maintain a friendship and a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, full disclosure, I was nine in 1989. <laughs> so I was like, not quite old enough for evangelism training, but it, I wasn't far from it. Right. And, and certainly I was hearing the echoes and rumbles of it coming down the pike. And so by the time I was, you know, in the early to mid nineties, really getting all of that stuff, I, I honestly don't think it had changed a whole lot to where the assumption was, um, well, uh, yeah, the way, the way we've been talking about it. And, you know, we, uh, for those who have been following along with our sermon series at Catalyst, we've been going through Matt's book that he put out last year, good news for a change. It, it's it was a it was a style of evangelism that was focused primarily on convincing people to believe the right things. And so we had to start with the things that we disagreed about. We had to as quickly as possible get to the the divergences in our thinking. You know, so whether that was convincing them that they're a sinner when they don't think they are, or whether that was like doing a takedown of evolution or something like that, right? Like whatever it was, it was, it was, can we, can we highlight that, that difference and then like basically square off and, 
I mean, no one said fight about it, but that's what it was, right? It was an argument. And and ultimately, we were trying to win. I think that in the sermon I talked about it as like conversational jujitsu, you know, where you're, they're like, here's all the kinds of things they'll say, and here's how you can counter those things and all that. So you're right. It's just not a, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a very effective way to connect with someone. I don't know very many people outside of myself who really enjoy arguing with people right after they meet them. Well, what's so interesting to me, you know, in, in as far as what you're really talking about is communication, which obviously I love thinking and talking about, is back then, before the cell phones, it was supposedly so much easier to have conversations with people. You know, that folks uh, who are a certain generation now feel offended if someone looks at their phone in front of them, whereas, you know, younger generation, it's totally normal to look at the phone and answer those buzzes during conversation, but it doesn't matter how the technology comes and goes, the challenges of knowing how to connect with people and talk with people and, and really keep that relationship front and center uh, remain, right? And I don't know, how, how do you guys navigate that? Matt, you talked about it in the book as well, but um, do you find that it's easier to connect with people now because we have all this technology and everybody's you know, one click away? Or do you, do you find a different experience? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think part of our problem for sure with social media is it's it's relatively new, right? Social media is newer than the internet, obviously. Uh, and we're still figuring out sort of the rules, like even what is polite, what is impolite? How do you engage with someone? You often have strangers engaging with you. So, uh, you know, a fight will break out on Facebook or Twitter with people who don't know enough about you to know the context of what you just said. And I think in some ways it's really similar to what we were just talking about in the sense that in a lot of ways, the church in the late eighties, early nineties was teaching young people how to fight with people who disagree with them, like look for the weakness of their argument and then show them what is true. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's great for debates and things like that, but it's not, it's not spectacular for building relationships um, so I think for sure there are challenges that we're navigating and figuring out um, as far as how do we, how do we talk to each other? Uh, and you know what? Actually, I'll say this too. A lot of what the church was teaching me when I was in high school, which was late 80s, early 90s, uh, on this topic was uh, go after go after evolution because that's the weak link for an atheist. Like that's easy to disprove and here's how you do it. And I mean, hours and hours on that. But the other thing was really political. Uh, there was a lot of political training actually like here's the right thing that people should do. Cause it was sort of the beginnings of the religious right were starting. And there was a lot of pressure to conform to that way of doing things. So again, it was sort of training for a fight. Hey, if this, I remember really specifically something that was passing in my local city uh, that they were going around to churches saying, hey, we have to fight this. We have to get out there and vote against it, but not just vote. Like we need to be out there, you know, talking to people, moving this forward. So it's interesting. I, I think shifting away from that, training ourselves to be fighters and to be more communi communication centered, more like you're saying, Clay, like keeping the relationship central, I think is an important thing. Actually, the 
Well, you're right. The The moral majority had been that big movement throughout the whole 80s, right? And it was really um, about to crash into new media in the 90s. And I think about the conservative talk radio that kind of blew up in the 90s. You know, certainly the election of Clinton helped some of that. But the the church did, or Christianity at large, did have a lot of influence through the 80s. And it was kind of like a new battleground in the 90s. And some of that power was used in ways that were tough. But yeah, it was absolutely tied to politics. And I, I wonder how much of the way we argue now, there's actually a book written by a woman named, uh, I think, Deborah Tannen, like 20 years ago, called The Argument Culture. And it's super relevant now because of where we ended up with social media. But she was talking then about... Um, what talk radio and cable news were doing. And those things were just in their infancy 30 years ago, but they started to explode in the 90s. And it created these echo chambers and this way that you could always go somewhere and be validated. You could always hear people who thought like you and you could be totally reinforced because if the news said it, then it must be absolute truth. And a lot of those things were just starting to blossom, I think, in in the last, well, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And it, it, it hasn't really necessarily helped us, has it? No. No, not at all. And I, I think I think honestly, the reason that those things haven't helped is that they um they reduce everything to talking points. And that's, you know, as in this series and, and I think one of the, the things that's really so great about Matt's book is um and where and again where I think people are really responding to the series as we're preaching through the book at at Catalyst is that it, it keeps us from being able to have relationships, right? It like reduces, um, it reduces people to talking points. And, uh, and even again, what that evangelism training was doing, right? Is it's like, I don't care about you. I don't care about your experiences. I don't care about why you believe or do the things you believe or do. What I care about is the fact that you disagree with me. And so I'm going to and I'm going to train all my energies on like making an intellectual movement to convince you of these points. Uh, And especially when we're talking about faith, but but I think it's it's it applies to everything. Uh, We are relational beings. We're relational creatures. And when we forget that and when we don't allow these difficult conversations to happen in the context of relationships, um, then they don't happen at all. We just go into our own corners and laugh at the other side and look down our nose at them and, you know, feel, feel smug and self-satisfied. Um, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to hear you two talk about it. I mean, JR, you just thought through, a, you know, a sermon format, but obviously we, we've all talked about it, Matt, you've written about it. You had some specific examples of kind of like the top hits of what, what some people uh, are thinking when they hear certain words like, Christianity. And um, could you give a couple of those examples or either one of you talk through that and how uh, a good way to respond is as opposed to just winning an argument or being defensive? Yeah, I think so. One of the things that happens is that because we uh, in the church set up this idea that a lot of evangelism is actually a fight, we bought into what I think is a myth that most people are hostile to Christianity. I don't think it's true. Some people are for sure. 
Um, but when you're coming looking for a fight, you have to explain to yourself why you're going to have a fight, right? So you've got to build up this idea like, well, they want to fight. They're against us. They're fighting us. Um, but let's say you do come across someone who's actually hostile to Christianity for some reason. Um, so one of the things, and, and, and you guys both know this, so jump in here and we can talk about it together. But like one of the things I found is that with people who are actually hostile, when we started having a spiritual conversation, that I could ask them a series of questions that would kind of diffuse that instead of fighting them. So like the first question I would always ask, if, if I start talking to someone about spiritual things and they're like, I want to have nothing to do with you, with this, with church, with Jesus, I would always start by saying, uh, what is the worst thing Christians have done in the last 2000 years? And like, what sorts of things do you think they said? Well, they always say the same things, right? Crusades, uh, participating in genocide of native peoples, yep. uh, endorsement and, uh, like sanctifying of the slave trade. Right. Yeah. And I think some people will go to the way the church has treated the LGBT community. Uh, there's like know. a big list and they're all arguably the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing, like I think, and clay, what you were saying about communication, like trying to find actually common ground, not places we disagree is that I think most people in the church would agree that most of these things actually are bad. Like they're, they're not great that they're not our best foot forward. Certainly. So if someone says the Salem witch trials, for instance, I think it's legit to say, yeah, I agree with you. That was not the best moment of Christianity, like killing people. And when you start getting into the history of it, depending how much this person actually knows, right? It actually is a big mess. Like a lot of it had to do with murdering women who were not matching the social norms of the time or who wouldn't recant or, you know, like whatever. Well, it gets, it gets even more complicated when they have actually read the Old Testament. Because they're like, this is pretty consistent with what the Bible showed people doing that were listening to God. Right. So so I think that, what but you want to do is build the common ground, though, to say, like, I agree with you. That's really terrible. That's, that's really bad. I think that's the – that's that is for some of us easier said than done because I think um, there's a natural sort of in-group mentality that takes over. It's sort of that no one can be – no one can pick on my kid brother but me. Yeah. And so when someone who has already said that they're hostile towards Christianity or towards Jesus or towards Christians or whatever starts talking about the things that they don't like, I think there is a a natural defensive reaction for a lot of us where we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, even though those things are true, like, you can't say that. Yeah. You know, yeah, those and, are my people. And, yeah. Right. And, and we just have to tamp that down because well, getting defensive yeah. is not going to do anything. And other defense mechanisms to watch in this is like a really common one. A common feeling for a Christian would be to say, well, those, per those people weren't really Christians. Oh my gosh. Um, it's kind of a knee jerk. It's defensive response, but we don't know that. And a lot of times actually, uh, and this goes into the second question I ask people, but a lot of times we know, cause we've experienced that Christians do terrible things. So that's usually the second question I ask people is, okay, so that's the worst thing that ever happened with Christians ever. Like, what's the worst thing a Christian has done to you personally, if they're willing to share, which they almost always are. Um, and that, that actually can be really raw. Like, uh, I share in the yep. book of a friend of mine in college who, uh, her dad, when she was very young, so 14 or 15, 
she got pregnant and her mom made her get an abortion. Uh, and her dad, who didn't live with them, was a new believer and said to her, uh, I can have nothing to do with you because I'm a Christian and Christians don't interact with people who have had abortions. Um, which is, I mean, that's really rough, right? Um, and again, the knee jerk is to say, oh, he, he's not a Christian or he shouldn't have done that. But instead, I think, again, you want to embrace that that's not right and say, you know, what I said to her, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Uh, and that was wrong, you know, and not try to defend Christians in that moment, but instead enter into her pain and, and agree with her in, in, in the injustice of it. Yeah, this is the this is the question I think is it's hard in a different way for a lot of people because it's so raw and sometimes we want to minimize, right? And say like, well, not all Christians are like that or again just kind of try to make ourselves feel a little more comfortable. And again, we just that that's toxic. I mean, yeah, when you I've sat across from friends who have told me that, you know, when they came out, their church kicked them out. Or, uh, you know, I know a, a friend from college who is an atheist now. And when he became an atheist, like his whole family uh, shunned him, you know, and wants nothing to do with him now and things like that. And so to to downplay that or to minimize that, again, is a defensive maneuver. It's not something that's actually fostering relationship with that person. And it's actually... Believe it or not, I promise, it's really easy to say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. What what they did to you was wrong. Yeah. yeah I and I, th- I'm okay. sorry. Go ahead, Clay. No, it's just this this idea that um, you know, I've I've heard I've heard amazing people weep about how someone in the street had the courage to come approach them and ask them about their eternal fate and it changed their life. Mm-hmm. And I've known a bunch of those street preacher folks. Sure, and it's it's like steeped in sales, right? The the the, the law of averages. Because I I did outside sales for a short time, and it's terrible. The <laughs> the goal is not to make everybody you encounter feel good. The goal is to get if your average is one in seventeen as a sale, then you got to get through those sixteen fast. You just blow right through them. And um, you know, going back to Norman Vincent Peale or whatever it was, evangelism explosion in the sixties. Like, there's legacies of this kind of attitude where it does work in some industries. But when we practice faith and represent Jesus in the way that is is like a law of averages numbers game, and you're not looking for relationship but conversions, um, that's real dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think on the question of like to uh, what's the worst thing Christians have done to you? We actually have a lot in common with people outside the church because all of us have experienced hurt from people in the church. Uh, Many of us have participated in harming others within the church. And I think being able to say, you know, like whatever thing is shared to say like, oh yeah, that's completely believable because this thing happened to me. Here's this hard thing that happened to me in the church. And again, I think it takes people off guard just because what you're saying is essentially I'm on your side. I agree with you. That was a really bad thing, and I'm really sorry. Um, and really, even apologizing on behalf of Christianity, which I think is is hard. It's hard. Um, but yeah, the next couple of questions I ask people is pretty easy. And again, like Clay was saying, it's really keeping the relationship central. But I just ask, what was the what was in, as far as you know, 
what was the main teaching of Jesus? And everyone I've ever asked with like one exception says love, uh, which, you know, and then, and then I just ask, so would people who are following the teaching of Jesus do the things in the first couple of questions? Like, would they commit genocide? Would they do this thing that harmed you? People usually say no. And uh, then I just say, do you want to talk more about the teachings of Jesus? Not all this church stuff, not all the Christianity stuff, but just what did Jesus have to say? And not everyone does, which is okay. But I think most people at that point have walked through and realized that in their own belief system, like what they are, they already have the pieces to come to. What they're upset about is not Jesus. Almost never. With I've run into a few. But most of the time, what they're upset about is some sort of experience they've had with people who are followers of Jesus. And that's really different. And by focusing on relationship first, we're laying the groundwork, at least, that we can be uh, a, a different experience of the followers of Jesus for those people. Yeah, I, what I like so much about it is the fact that this isn't just um, how to talk to people about your faith. It's it's how to be a good human. It's how it's how you should always engage people. The old Stephen Covey thing of seek first to understand and then be understood. Mm. Um, that is just a good posture to have. You know, Jr's talked so much about empathy, and and I love Matt that you you start off by defining the term. You know, just because you say you're a Christian or someone says they're a Christian, it's never really clear based on that word what that actually means, is it? Oh. I mean, <laughs> I'm a Christian. That means a thousand different things no. to a thousand different people. No, it's true. That's true. What Clay, you've written, uh, you've written some recently on communication and things like that. Like take us to the broader level. How, how do the, these concepts of keeping relationships central and, you know, listening and interacting, how, how do those work on a broader level? Like not necessarily in a spiritual conversation, but just in general in human relationships. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. I mean, you have to be willing to do the work to understand the other person. And you guys model this all the time, right? Cross-cultural is a is a big communication gap for all of us, uh, what we're unfamiliar with. Or um, just not knowing where that person's experiences have taken them mentally. If there's an, if there's an emotional resistance someone has to your position – and you're trying to win an intellectual argument, mm -hmm. you, you, can't, you, you can't do that until you understand the emotional, you know, whether you're writing sales copy for a, a cool new blender or, or whatever the case may be. But I do think first and foremost, it starts with empathy and listening. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. And that, that doesn't mean you have to be some, you know, research genius who goes out and gets a PhD in the other person before you speak with them. And, and I do think you should speak with people, not to people. That's that's just a good trick to remember to, to help you be in a conversation, not a command situation. But just ask a lot of questions. Always ask questions. It's It worked for Socrates. It'll work for most of us. And, and honestly... <laughs> it worked for Socrates. <laughs> you know... How do you die in Remind me. <laughs> Say that again. I just think... I think back 30 years ago, and I wasn't quite there yet, but I was starting, like JR said, to to enter into the adolescent phase. And 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I had some conversations with people, and I approached people about my faith and my beliefs in ways that I look back on 
probably with the same amount of shame as Zach Morris looks at his sweaters. And <laughs> it is just – it's embarrassing to think, oh, gosh, I thought that was so noble and courageous. And you, you can never lose with humility if, if you approach uh, – especially the more power you have in a dynamic, right? If you have, if people have to listen to you, <laughs> that's especially when you need to be most questioning and humble. But um, my, my final thought on just good practices is um, you, have to, you have to be willing to be wrong. And, that, and sometimes you have to go back and apologize. And I, you know, in the last 15 years, I've had some conversations with people. It, it really struck me one day when a student came to my office and, um, I don't know how long I'd been teaching, but you know the the PG version is. She she basically said, "You're a Christian." She's like, "It can't be. All Christians are a holes." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh." She's like, "But you're not." And I was like, "Whew, okay." <laughs> but then I thought, "Oh, but I have been one of those guys that probably helped framed views like this, right?" Yeah. And um, in in some cases, I was able to go back and have conversations with people and just apologize for the way I represented my beliefs at different times, whether it was faith or politics or just whatever happens when you're a 22-year-old guy and you think you know the world. (laughs) So you all know that uh, we are on the verge of Lent, the season of the church here that we reserve for self-examination and uh, confessing sin. And so we are going to be working through a book at Catalyst called Cringeworthy, which Mm -hmm. is about awkwardness. Yeah. And so one of the chapters, this is spoiling the third week a little bit. Um, sorry, Clay, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers for week three of your church Spo- series. Spoilers for church. That's awesome. I didn't, I didn't know how, how legalistic Jesus your rises spoiler again. Code was. Spoiler, so, Judas did it. Matt, God, that's Judas. not until Easter, okay? <laughs> All right, anyway, let's hear your spoiler. Yeah, so she talks about um, empathy and says that uh, well, ooh, let me play this. Um, what group of people on the internet would you be surprised score really high in empathy? Uh, Neo-Nazis. Satanists. Uh, it's trolls. Oh. What? Huh? Internet trolls score really high in empathy. What? How? Why? Because in order to troll effectively, you have to be able to understand... Um, how someone else thinks shoot. and what kinds of things are going to hurt them. You meant sociopaths. No, um, it's tr- it's real. This is real. Uh, yeah. So psychologists have started distinguishing between two kinds of empathy. Uh, cognitive mm-hmm. empathy, which is what trolls demonstrate, which is that ability to understand another person well enough to hurt them or manipulate them. This so is, like uh, an intellectual idea of what yep. someone is feeling or thinking. Yep. Yep. And Clay, even when you're talking about sales, right? It's that kind of, that what's necessary, what makes you good at that kind of thing, right? And then compassionate empathy, which is the ability to not only cognitively, but also emotionally connect to what that person is experiencing. Ah, so that's where you might have compassion for someone. You see the same thing, but you feel compassion instead of seeing a vulnerability. Uh, and compassion instead of contempt. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, only cognitive empathy uh, can easily lead to contempt for another person, hmm. which is what which is what internet trolls demonstrate. Because you see, I think you see weakness and exploit it instead mm-hmm. of seeing weakness and protecting. And I think uh, I think that would be instructive for us to remember as we think about evangelistic conversations. 
Uh, it's entirely mm. possible to demonstrate a high level of cognitive empathy, but ultimately feel contempt for this person who is far from God. Right. And uh -huh. be able to manipulate them or trick them or argue them into a corner. Uh, but not actually demonstrate uh, kindness to, towards them, compassion towards them and relationship building. And I don't remember where we were talking about this, Matt, but it may have been on our last episode. Like you pointed out, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, at least yeah. according to the Bible. And I mean, if you care about that. Yeah, I believe the Bible. I don't know about everyone else on this podcast. But, <laughs> hey. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, like that's that's it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so that that is a big challenge for me in my conversations about Jesus with other people is that if they're not kind, if I'm not focused on that compassionate empathy, uh, then, then I'm missing it. And it's entirely possible for me to work hard to understand another person, but in a way that leads me to have contempt for them and look down my nose at them rather mm -hmm. than in a way that leads me to kindness towards them. Um, people feel that immediately too. And I think that's why some people feel like it's a bad conversation, right? You're talking to someone and they're like, they think I'm stupid or I don't know anything about spiritual they're stuff or they're judging me. like a me. project. Yeah. Right. Just like another notch on the evangelism belt. Well, there's, if there's one area that I'm, you know, disrupting a little bit, some of the popular thinking out there, you hear this all the time in the business world, in the corporate world. I hear this all the time. Communication is all about listening. And then someone says, ah, uh -uh, not just listening, active listening. Ah, and, and, and like mm. they fixed it. But I say, you know, you can definitely listen incorrectly. You can actually listen sure. maliciously. You can listen oh. with the sole purpose of exploiting people. And that's what you're talking about, JR. You have to have the correct empathy first and, and be listening to truly understand. All right. Let me give you an example of something someone said to me on Twitter, and you let me know which type of empathy they were showing. Uh, there was a guy fighting with JR, who JR blocked because the guy was being unkind. I don't, uh, I don't abide trolls anymore. I got other things to do with my time. <laughs> and then I started talking to him, and then he told me that if my last name was Michelotis, I should just go eat a pita. Hmm. Um, now if someone told me <laughs> to go eat a pita, I would consider that a kindness because I love pita. I love pitas. They're delicious. I but think it was suspicion... meant to be racial. Yes. You two have very different communication styles online. Can I just say that? What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> then we do in real life or then one another. No, I, I think in real life it pretty much it is, a, it is an accurate reflection online of who you both are, and it, it they're both effective. I mean, Matt, you err on the side of graciousness to an extreme, and Jr., you are gracious. You have less patience for probably people who are playing games, and and Matt, you I'm, I'm kind of in between both of you probably, which is funny. But, you know, Matt, you're good at bringing it around to the uh, just focus on the positive, you know, just keep well, you know pulling what's funny the positive that guy, going back to that. I started sending him notes saying like, hey, that was a strange thing to say. Is this a persona or is this the real you? Like, why would you say something like that? And yeah. then he eventually apologized. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, JR is not going to go there. Um, and there's nothing wrong with not going there. You will, and then you end up with that follow-up well, conversation. And I think so you get different... Um, I wouldn't go there either. You get different potential results. And there are times, for sure, uh, where I've got a conversation going on online, and I'll ping JR and say, hey, man, could you step in here and do what you do for this person? Exactly. <laughs> 
And that's good, by the way. You know, it's it's uh, it's always easier for for trusted allies. Um, you know, especially in, in any scenario when you're trying to have a certain kind of dynamic in a conversation. I've had close friends reach out to me and say, "Hey, I don't know how to engage this. If I do anything myself, it's going to come off wrong." And but yet, if if someone else comes in and and says the same thing, it it could work, you know, better. So that's actually yeah. just just smart tactically in in a way that isn't manipulative at all. It's it's just different people can hear different things in different ways at different times from different other people. Well, and for me also, especially online, it also comes down to a question of like what I'm doing with my time and where I'm really willing to invest it. And yeah, like I talk about a lot of big, difficult issues on Facebook, especially. And I get people who are genuinely trying to have those conversations also and learn and grow. And then I get people that just want to troll. Yeah. Uh, and what I found is if I engage those trolls, even in a way that's like funny or whatever, it actually shuts down other conversations because no uh, one else wants to engage them. True. And so I have, lo- I, I have gotten relatively adept at figuring out when people are genuinely trying to have a conversation and when they're trolling and I just shut the trolls down immediately. But I do that for the sake of the other folks who are trying to have honest conversations. Um, yeah. So I think that's when it like going back to that concept of keeping it personal too. like, I think there are times where someone, whatever happened, they are angry, furious, bitter, whatever it is. I find that sometimes just sending them a personal note, like not, publicly and saying, Hey, are you okay? Like, it seems like you're having an extreme response here that sometimes that completely changes. They'll like step out of the conversation. Um, you know, cause you're moving again toward that relational piece. Now, again, there are a bunch of people that are on the internet purely to create havoc and be cruel to people. And it doesn't work with people like that. And for sure you shouldn't stay in a conversation that's causing you harm. But I think there are times where someone is having a bad day or something, you know, mm. And just pointing out to them like, hey, are you meaning to come across in this really negative way on this post? And they'll be like, oh, gosh, uh, I mean, I recognize now what I'm doing and I'm going to step back. And I think that can be really helpful. Yeah, that's an area where I don't take as much time very often to discern, right? And we should because there is a difference between a true troll and somebody who really is having that extreme emotional response. So definitely good to try to try to discern and to respond. Well, in, and I think one way. of the things we don't talk a lot about with social media is looking at our own motivation too. like, for sure, there are times I'm about to tweet something or put something on Facebook and I need to stop and say, am I doing this just to get attention or to get props? Mm-hmm. Am I doing this to be cruel to someone that I'm mad at? Am I, you know, what is my purpose in posting this? And unless I'm able to do that with myself, I shouldn't have any expectation that the others interacting with me are doing the same and that occasionally reminding others of that is really positive. So long as I'm reminding myself too. that's a great thought. I've actually, I've moved way back from any kind of intense engagements or even criticism. Like if I'm feeling like a rant or if I'm feeling angry that I've learned for myself, it's just not good to go online at that moment to to post that thing. And so I've just removed entire categories. It's like, oh, wait, I don't tweet about, you know, sports anymore. Or I don't tweet about politics anymore because that's not a safe way for me to engage. I don't feel that it's healthy. I'll talk about politics or history with people all day offline, but I'm not going to do this or that. So, you know, knowing, managing yourself, that's, that's, if you, if you get my book, 
and uh, and you want a quick primer on it on on gaining influence through communication as the title, but it's really all about building relationships. That's that's one of my five big points. Is that's at awesome. the end of the day, you have to be able to know yourself, what triggers you, and when you're fatigued, and when you are not in a space that you can handle intense confrontations or even conversations, um, and you have to manage yourself in order to maintain your own composure. Because it can take years to build up credibility, whether you're trying to share your faith or just make a new friend or succeed in the workplace. And that credibility can be undermined in a five-minute rant. So um, know yourself, take care of yourself, and and you know focus on others first as much as you can. But take care of yourself, but then focus on others. That's awesome. All right. Well, we are about out of time. Uh, but before we go, we really should talk about what's fascinating us this week. Um, so, uh, Clay, what, uh, what's been fascinating you this week? Yeah, I'm going back to nature. Nobody seems to care about all, uh, all the wonderful nature shows that Jen and I are obsessed with. But Blue Planet was a very famous one years ago. And Blue Planet 2 came out in uh, 2017. And somehow I never got to this one until now. So it's... It's been a very intense, busy season for Jen and I, and we find that for the most part, putting on Blue Planet at the end of the night is really calming, and just listening to David Attenborough talk about Humboldt, uh, octopi, or whatever crazy it's just like fish. A, it's like a animal documentary, basically, yeah? Yeah, it's just crazy what they can do technologically to film these things. And I love learning about science and planets and, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there are some really wild things happening in the ocean that are insane. They have, they, they have, a, they have a whole 10-minute t- thing on a fish that has learned how to use a rock as a tool. And you watch it and you're <laughs> like, this is impossible. These fish are thinking. Scientists didn't even think this was possible. So, uh, yeah, Blue Planet 2 for me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, JR, we had Kathy sent one in, even though she's not here, something she wanted to share. You want to tell us about that, JR? Yeah. So Kathy's, what she's into is a book that I have in my queue that I'm trying to get to soon. So I'm super excited about it. I'm glad to hear that she liked it so much. It's called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. And this book is essentially a walkthrough of how uh, neighborhood segregation happened at the federal, state, and local level. Um, Most of the time, uh, people assume that the reason most neighborhoods are segregated is because either of what uh, he calls private prejudice, which is the idea, oh, well, you know, like, black people just tend to like other black people, and white people tend to like other white people, and it's just people tend to live by who they like, or economic forces. So it's like, well, yeah, like, unfortunately, Um, more black and Hispanic people are impoverished. So they tend to be in poorer neighborhoods, but like, it's not racism, it's class. Right. And no, actually uh, what Rothstein does in this book is he walks through all of the actual laws that were passed at all three of those levels in all these different places in America to intentionally create segregated neighborhoods. Uh, So it's got, this book has a like whole slew of awards um, people like people are just uh, raving over how uh, how important it is. So yeah, that's uh, again the color of law. Awesome, that sounds really awesome. great. Yeah, mm-hmm. good. Um, I after the Oscars this week, which we didn't even discuss, but uh, it, 
After the Oscars, I had been putting off seeing Black Klansman. I had wanted to see it. JR had told me multiple times to see it. I had almost gone a few times. I went ahead and rented it, and uh, I was astonished. It is so good. It's so funny, uh, but moving and maddening at the same time. It's the story of an African-American police officer, the first one in Colorado. Colorado Springs, is it? Yep. Um, And basically, he goes undercover uh, and kind of, for a lark, calls the KKK from an ad he sees in the newspaper uh, pretending he wants to join, and they say, hey, let's meet up. And he realizes, oh, wait, I'm black. How am I going to do this? Uh, so he gets another cop to go pretend to be him in person, and he does all the phone calls. Huh. Uh, and it's great. So to this day, it's based on a true story. Uh, the guy who did this has his clan membership card. You know, African-American guy, he'll come around and show it to you. Um, but great movie. So well done. Really interesting and really important as far as talking about the the themes of what was happening in our culture at that time and some of how it's played out into today. And Spike Lee just won with a, uh, his team of writers. Didn't they win adapted screenplay? Best yeah. adapted screenplay. Best Unfortunately, adapted screenplay. it lost best picture to a much, 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 much worse film. Uh, <laughs> that, that actually has a lot of similar things. It's a period piece that shows an unlikely friendship that develops between men of two different races um, and and uh, deals with topics of racism in America, but uh, actually, Green Book is one of the worst movies about race that you can imagine seeing. And Spike Lee lost to that one, which ironic is ironic because thirty years ago he put out Do the Right Thing, which many people thought should have won the Best Picture that year, and lost to Driving Miss Daisy, which is another uh, well less than ideal movie about racism. So. This this uh this final segment this week is is very colorful. Between the color of law and blue planet and black clansmen and <laughs> mentions of green book, it's Well, and I'm choosing something purple. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Purple Rain by Prince. Uh, no. <laughs> no, that's great too though. No, I'm going to be into Lent since Lent starts on Wednesday for Ash Wednesday. Lent is purple. Uh, Lent is purple. It's the uh, the the liturgical color of Lent is purple. Oh, so uh, that's Lent. why if you go to a high church, they wear the robes and stuff. They'll have everything purple. If you go to Catalyst, you'll notice that the lights at the, on the stage are all purple. Oh, nice. Um, so, I just got a purple mattress, but it was not Lent related. So uh, <laughs> that's what you think. What? <laughs> so what about um, Lent? Is fascinating you this week, Chair? Well, one, uh, I, am super excited about the series that we're going to be doing at Catalyst, uh, called Cringeworthy, a, a theory of awkwardness. I, I, we're going to be doing some of the most awkward stories in the Bible and talking about how, if we're willing to hang out in the awkward, instead of laugh it off or avoid it, we can actually grow spiritually. That's a way that God can use to reveal to us those sins that we don't see in ourselves, which are in my mind, some of the hardest ones to overcome because we can't see them. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote up a little uh, guide to Lent for folks who have never practiced Lent before, maybe don't go to a church that practices Lent uh, that I published on Norval. So it's over there and it gives you kind of an overview of like what the Lenten fast is all about and how you can participate in those things. So uh, I think I'm going to my Lenten fast is that I'm going to get up 20 minutes earlier every day and spend that time in silence and prayer. Uh, so I'm not really fasting from something I'm more adding something, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about Lent this year, and I think the the series is going to be like fun and weird in the ways that I like to be fun and weird. And uh, yeah, I just I just think it's going to be a really fun series. So I'm super into, and I'm I'm you know I write I work pretty far ahead, so I'm 
I like eyeballs deep in Lent planning right now, even though it doesn't start until Wednesday. Okay. We need to wrap up, but I do want to ask you one more question about Lent. And that is, uh, for those of us who didn't grow up in a tradition where we practiced Lent, you know, like gave up things, can you give us like the two minute, here's why we do this and how to choose something? Sure. So Lent, uh, Lent is part of the church calendar. So, so in a lot of churches, they divide the year into different themes. So like Advent is a season of anticipation where we prepare to, to welcome Jesus. And then after Advent is Christmas, where we celebrate Christ with us, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, that's followed by Epiphany, which is the celebration that God is not only for us, God is for the whole world. So that's why during Epiphany, we've been doing good news for a change, uh, because it's about talking to everyone about Jesus. And, and Epiphany ends with the Transfiguration, which is where Jesus goes up the mountain and he appears, you know, the Elijah and Moses appear there with him. And uh, sort of thematically, what you do after that in Lent is Jesus leaves the mountain. And so he comes down off the mountain and then it's like a descent all the way down to the cross, right? To death, to the grave. And so during the season of Lent, Christians are encouraged to spend that time in particular prayer and self-examination, asking God to show, to point out in us uh, sin and that so that we can repent and, and, and turn to God and ask God to heal us of that sin. And that's all in anticipation of the Easter celebration. So, so Lent ends with Good Friday. Uh, with the death of Christ. And then we, we all, you know, t- a typical Good Friday gathering is, you know, you, is dismissed in darkness and in silence. And then, uh, and, and actually, I mean, depending on how, how deep you want to go into the church geekdom, right? Uh, you let, you lit Advent candles, four candles leading up to Christmas Eve. And then you, on Christmas Eve, you light the Christ candle. The Christ candle has been burning on the altar of the church every Sunday since Advent. And it's extinguished on Good Friday during the end of the Good Friday gathering oh. as a way of showing that Christ is gone. And then, and then you come back on Easter Sunday morning and celebrate the resurrection and the new life we have in Christ. Wow. So, so that's Lent. Like that's the idea of Lent. One of the, one of the things I did not grow up celebrating Lent. I started doing it in college. And then when I was a youth pastor, my, a lot of my students just asked me why I was doing a fast and they all started doing it. And then once I got into the church in the Nazarene, we as as a church started practicing Lent together. And one of the things I love about it is it really makes Easter a big deal because you've spent six weeks in, in serious self-examination and some kind of fasting. Like, and so you literally and metaphorically start hungering for Easter. And so then when Easter comes, it's not just like, oh, wait, that's right, Easter's this weekend. Yeah, cool, we better go get a new outfit for church. It becomes this thing that you've been anticipating and looking forward to and preparing for for six weeks. And so it, it ends up feeling more like the culmination of a six-week-long uh, buildup so this big party than just like a, like a slightly extra special day, if that makes sense. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, w- the fast is designed as a way to remember it, it, it's, it's to mirror Jesus's fast in the wilderness when he confronts Satan. And so it's, it's 40 days. So you, you fat, you're supposed to fast the Monday or Monday through Saturday. You don't fast on Sundays because Sundays is a feast day and you're, you don't, you don't feast or you don't fast when the bridegroom is with you to use Jesus's words, but you just choose something to give up. So some people have done a wholesale food fast. I think some people on this podcast have fasted for 40 days, not for Lent, but have done that. Yep. Um, you can also like some people will give up social media for 40 days 
or they'll give up like caffeine or meat or uh, something like that. Or, and then some people like what I'm doing this year, they choose to add a practice instead. So they'll, they'll have like a prayer book that they're going to work through every day, or they have like a, um, like uh, some kind of a particular routine they implement, like prayer walking in their neighborhood or something like that. Um, what I always tell people is Lent, a Lenten fast is not some is not designed to help you quit something you should quit. So like I know people that are like, oh, I'm going to start a diet for Lent or I'm going to quit cussing for Lent. And it's like, well, no, because the, the idea is you're excited to pick this thing back up at the end of Lent when Easter comes, right? <laughs> oh, so it shouldn't be like cigarettes or something like that. No, I mean, again, if you want to quit smoking, that's great. Like, yes, I'll cheer you on in that. But don't make that your Lenten fast because the idea of the fast is you're giving up something good as a sacrifice to God. So only if you want to keep smoking, you could give up cigarettes. That's exactly right. If you want oh. to keep smoking, you could give up cigarettes and then enjoy that drag you take on Easter Sunday morning. So like for me, it could be like I give up tortilla chips because I love oh them forever gosh. or like yeah. avocados or something. And, and just imagine like what would it be like if you went six weeks without eating tortilla chips? Like what would Easter Sunday morning be like for you when you get to have tortilla chips? When I had breakfast? not shows for breakfast yes you mean like that <laughs> yeah It'd what would it be amazing like? it'd be right. amazing that's it right like that's the idea is it's like it's just it's kind of like a dumb little thing but it really magnifies the intensity of our easter celebration in like a fun way interesting so it starts wednesday okay yeah, i gotta Ash think wednesday, about it right? i've never actually done lent it's my favorite it's it's my favorite season of the church year uh, especially because of the build-up to easter so cool yeah, so I, and again, I wrote about it at Norville. So if you want to hop over there and see that's the guide Norvalrogers. to Lent, com. Yeah, so, so that's what I that's what I'm into this week. I'm super into Lent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so this has been episode 218. Uh, we would love to hear uh, if our segment on things that are 30 made you feel old or made you think that we are old either way is great uh, we'd also love to hear what you think about evangelism and communication and 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 some tips you've found that are helpful for keeping relationships central in your in your communication uh we will be back next week with another great episode and kathy will be back soon as well from her world travels uh until then thanks as always for listening and uh take care of yourselves out there 